0: This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. This week, the lost year. This is a special takeover of the issue. It is all about the coronavirus. And we look at it from multiple angles because, safe to say, Jason, this story, there are so many moving parts to it. And having said that, it was a fast-moving story this week.
0: Well, and I think it's worth letting people know sort of what the editorial ethos, as it were, of this magazine was this week, and that is to go from macro literally to micro, looking at global economics, looking at companies, looking at people, all the way down to the disease itself.
1: Well, I loved it, too, some of the conversations that went around in the newsroom this week. And this, you know, safe to say, folks, a little insight into what was going on here at Bloomberg and at Bloomberg Business Week. This was our story this week because we were looking at it from so many different ways, and it obviously impacted the financial markets. But someone saying it was less about GDP revisions than being a major disturbance to our daily life, and that's what it was about.
0: And that's what happened this week that I think is really worth mentioning and underscoring is that it went from the abstract in many ways, something that we were thinking and talking about as it related to overseas economies and supply chains. And it got all the way down to Basketball tournaments being canceled, mm-hmm. schools being closed, a suburb of New York City effectively being shut down, quarantined, and contained.
1: And all of this happening, and as you say, uh, all of these things going on and from an individual basis for you know reporters deciding all of a sudden to work at home because that made sense. And so it wasn't this far-off story that we were all reporting on. It was impacting our daily lives. And so that's how the magazine looked at it, really from all different ways. Jill Weber is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He was the one who made the decision from this being a partial takeover of the magazine to devoting the entire issue to the virus and really stepping back and taking a look at the macro issues all the way down to the actual virus itself.
0: Well, and it's not an easy task because as you say, Carol, it is so fast moving. You had world leaders stepping in, you had CEOs uh, making pronouncements, and it fell to Joel and his team to make sense of it all.
2: So when we thought about how to do this issue, uh, we started actually relatively small, and then we just kept getting more ambitious as we kept seeing some of the stories come in and kept asking questions. So that idea of asking questions is actually the way that we framed the whole book. We started from the macro, what does this mean for the global economy, and work down from there from through governments, companies, us as individuals in society, and all the way down to the, the virus itself, right? So that was our lens and then we just asked questions again and again and again. But the overarching idea is really this idea of the last year, right? Of like, we don't know what this means right now or how bad it will get, but Everything, and especially as this became a pandemic, officially in a pandemic now, right. every, all projections out the window and no one can even know if their kid's going to go to a summer camp, right? That's
0: the editor of the magazine, Joel Weber. And Carol, obviously a key component of all of this, certainly close to home for everyone who knows Bloomberg, mm-hmm. was the market.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Mike Regan really follows the stock market for us here in the financial markets. He's got a story in the magazine on what happened to the bull market, because as we know, things change this week.
2: Well, what's amazing to me is how many threats were thrown at this bull market over the years you know i look back at 2011 when the u.s lost its AAA a credit rating at s p to the european debt crisis all the various geopolitical dust in in the meantime uh the crash in oil prices in 2016 on and on and it got very close to sort of hitting that 20 percent drop that would sort of signal the end of a, a bull market and the start of a bear market but uh, both times in 2011 and again in 2018, it, it stopped just short of that, like 19-point-something percent. so close, So right? close, and it really made you sort of think, well, investors had kind of put some orders in to buy near those levels, thinking that, you know, this thing can can survive almost anything it felt like. Clearly, the economic damage being done from this virus is just so great. It's so unquantifiable right right now. Um, We know the damage is being done. Uh, How bad it is, how bad the effect on earnings and everything is just so unquantifiable that this this appears to be what's really going to do the trick and and finally end this record-long bull market. When
0: ultimately investors are betting on the future in many ways and one of the things that they're not hearing from companies and one of the things that Mm -hmm. seems to be really spooking everyone is instead of companies saying well it's going to take earnings down or it's going to take revenues down x percent
2: or x much they're saying we don't know right right Right. just withdrawing guidance so it's almost a worse scenario than saying a a drop you know predicting a drop of x percent Um, and it's understandable i mean how can a company possibly uh, in good faith tell you what their earnings are going to be, or even a, a wide range, when there is so much uncertainty, so much unpredictability about this virus, how long it's going to last, how long this travel ban is going to be enforced, on and on and on, all the way up and down the markets. It's, it's just impossible to price the equity market. Right Mike,
1: now. we obsess about levels, right? And when we hit uh, a technical correction or when we hit, hit officially a bear market, how important though is it in terms of what happens next for the financial markets?
2: Well, as far as trying to find that magic technical level, people have been trying to do it the, the entire stretch of this, and they've just been blown through one by one. You know, you think of uh, you know your two hundred day moving average. A lot of people were hoping would cause a, a pause that round number at three thousand. Nothing is really working more than say a couple minutes in the market as as far as the support level. So it's it's such an unprecedented situation uh, that you know as much as Wall Street loves you know to say past performance doesn't right. guarantee future results that 's what everyone does is they go back and try to find that historical uh, analog to what 's going on it 's just impossible to do in this case it 's just we 've never quite had a threat like this to the economy and a simultaneous threat to everyone 's health and well being at the same time that sort of are inextricably linked. You know, you're, you're stressed out about like the market, a perfect storm and you're also stressed ways. out about, you know, am I going to have to quarantine? Is my family okay? My relatives overseas? It's a, it's a very unique and unprecedented situation.
0: And that's Mike Regan giving us the market's perspective. We will look back, I believe, on this week certainly as the end of the record long bull market and a moment where a lot changed when it comes to equities.
1: It's official. We're in a bear market. The economic impact of the virus, man, it is on everyone's minds. The coronavirus could cost the global economy $2.7 trillion, according to some of the latest reporting. Wow. A yeah. woa, as I like to say.
0: Yeah, it's a woa number for sure, and a fast-moving one, a fast-moving yeah. story. In the takeover issue all around coronavirus this week, economics goes deep, especially into China, where the source of this, or at least the original outbreak, was... What's the state of China, Christina Lindblad?
3: Well, everybody is watching to see how soon the world's number two economy gets back on its feet because it's important to just about every country. They're also, it's, you know, also curiosity about how companies negotiate some of these obstacles. You know, for example, there are now, like, rules in China about how close workers can sit at lunchtime, you know, at their desks. But so basically... Analysts ours and at other banks on Wall Street and companies have been looking at statistics in China to try to gauge how quickly uh, industry and and factories are coming back online now that's a tricky thing because for a long time there have been suspicions that you know the government fudges its numbers right it's tricky in normal times right so but because of that though people have these sort of proxy you know data sets that they track, and one of them is energy, and they've been look- they've looked at those for a long time. So now people, for example, are looking at like thermal coal, which is used, you know, for electricity production, to see what is consumption of thermal coal telling me about, like, you know, what you know, how quickly the plants are coming back to life. It's but coming.
0: even that, yeah, exactly.
3: yeah, even that hasn't been totally reliable because we have now seen. From interviews with plant managers is that in several uh, prefectures, you know, government um, officials handed out targets for, you know, how for energy consumption. So that means that in like sometimes factory owners were going in, turning on all the lights, running the machinery, even if they didn't have you know, all of their workers back to actually be able to, you know, really be doing full production again it's just like, to meet the target.
0: It's like the movie Home Alone, you know, yeah, where know. he sets it all up to make it look like they're having a party.
1: I Listen, I thought about, like, growing up, and my dad's like, shut off the lights! I like, know. you know, throwing out all the lights. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, too, is we don't know that as China kind of tries to get back to normal and everybody comes back after being quarantined, what happens? I mean, do you get potentially another outbreak?
3: Like, we don't know, right? Yeah, that has been... Uh, something that some health um, authorities outside the country have been warning about, that, you know, we could see another wave of infection. And then and now what's happening more recently, now that it's clear that this is spilling over in economic terms to other countries, what people are warning about is that there's going to be this feedback loop in which what it was initially like a supply crunch, like these factories couldn't get, well, they didn't have workers and they couldn't get, you know, inputs to to produce right. are now going to be hit by a demand crunch because like, you know, so their customers in Europe and the U.S. are going to be canceling orders. And that's already starting to happen to some of the business people that we talked to.
0: One of the things you point out in this story, which is really important, is the size of the economy, but also the size of the downturn here and the historical perspective there. You guys say it's the force. First quarterly contraction in decades, we're likely to see, and the weakest year since the early 1990s for China. That's a long time.
3: Yeah, and not only that, but the historical comparisons, you also have to consider the fact that like a decade ago, China's contribution to the world economy was much smaller. So, you know, all of these, you know, businesses, there's like all of these networks that have built up. Like, so this transmission like effects that are going on kind of backwards and forwards along these relate these business relationships, yeah. right? That's what's that's what people are beginning to to caution about now, that it's going to sort of amplify the downturns in some places and, and that where people are just gonna try to you know get a grip on that.
1: What about the Chinese government, man? We always talk about deep pockets and that when there's problems, they can certainly dip into them to kind of help out society. We're talking about stimulus packages. The magazine's covering a lot about stimulus packages from different governments and around the world. What about that in China
3: well so far what we've seen is not much from the monetary side which is which in China doesn't have the same kind of stimulative effect that it does in in the US and other Western countries so they've only like trimmed interest rates I mean by comparison with the Fed and and the Bank of England have done as much deeper cuts but what they are doing is more targeted, you know, assistance to, mm-hmm. to firms, particularly in the areas, well, inside the province that's the epicenter and the surrounding areas. And we, we continue to think that they'll be modulating, you know, the extent of stimulus. But one thing is so far, I mean, they haven't said this outright, but that's like they do not want to do anything on the scale that we saw after the financial right. crisis because that was massive. Um, I think it was like 12% of GDP or something like that. And the indebtedness level, Uh, that resulted from that, you know, is still a problem. So that is something that they're continuing to work through.
1: That leads to another story in the economic section. And I think this one is so front and center, because it's not just, I feel like the virus concerns, but the energy (laughs) war that we're seeing has certainly put certain sectors into risk. We're talking about corporate debt here in America. Tell us about the situation, because we've seen companies, because debt was so cheap, taking on a lot more debt coming off of the financial crisis.
3: Yeah, so we've had like an 11-year expansion coupled with historically low interest rates. Um, there's been a huge expansion in sort of high-yield credit markets and 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 the, just the corporate debt load, which now, uh, for the first time since 1991, exceeds that of American households. So the IMF and other people have been warning that this is a problem for a while, yeah. like in the U.S. and other countries. Uh, Powell and other um, U.S. economists have, all, have also, though, been quick to point out it's nothing on the scale of, of the housing bubble, which, you know, which brought down the economy. So there's been this attempt to say, like, right. yes, it's an issue. We're looking at it. We don't think it can, on its own, tip the U.S. economy into recession. But it can amplify the effects of a downturn. Because if those mm. firms that have you know get downgraded, there's this cascading effect – um, the the money managers who own this kind of debt have limits on what you know on this the quality of the assets they can hold right their exposure right so they would right? have to sell down some of the stuff right and then you know the companies get the com- the the borrowers are being cut off from credit markets right. they're going to do layoffs perhaps they're going to like pull back on investment yeah. that has effects for gdp growth so i think that um One of the things that we're going to be looking at, everyone's going to be looking at, is uh, pink slips, is people starting to get laid off. I mean, the Mm. Fed has been clear uh, that this is one of the things that, you know, that's when people are going to start to get worried. That's the editor of the
1: economic section, Christina Lindblad, taking a look at the economy, the global economy. Front and center is China. We're all watching to see how quickly the Chinese economy will bounce back. It's not so clear cut.
0: Well, and also the conversation about corporate debt, mm-hmm. we talk about that a lot, again, in the abstract, what's going on with leverage loans, what's going on with companies borrowing. But we're going to start to see very specific examples and very specifically how this will play through to the broader economy.
1: So we keep hearing about many ways to fend off the coronavirus. Got a really simple piece of advice. Stay home. That's exactly what Justin Fox, Bloomberg opinion columnist, is doing where he's coming to us from home, from his computer, thanks to Nexi, which is our internal conferencing system. Um, Justin, it sounds like simple advice.
4: Yeah, I mean, and it's really simple for me. I'm an opinion columnist. All I need to do my job is a phone and a laptop and an internet connection
1: what's interesting is we're at this time where we're all trying to figure out you know how can we we can't contain it at this point but it's all about mitigation how do you prevent it from spreading and we talk about you know fist bumping and elbow bumping and all these different ways there's no more handshakes and we're all keeping kind of social distance but as you point out it's very simple because it's kind of an equation and i think there's a word that i think we should teach to everybody are not because it's all about lowering the are not explain that
4: I mean, R-naught is basically the infectiousness of a disease. It's how many people, each person with a disease can be expected to infect. So if it's above one, the disease spreads. If it's below one, it doesn't spread. And every disease sort of has, they estimate what the R-naught is if nobody changes their behavior. And for the coronavirus, it's pretty high. It seems to be between two and three, whereas for Influenza, most estimates are usually down in the ones. Um, and, and so the issue is it, it's different for different kinds of diseases, but kind of the basic elements of what make up the R-naught are how long does the infection last, um, how infectious is the disease when you have contact with a person, and how many people do you have contact with? And we can affect that, how infectious when we have contact with a lot of the things like washing our hands and not touching our faces and things like that. But then a lot of it is just if you reduce the number of people having contact with each other, if your society has social distancing, then the R-naught goes down. And, you know, in China, the... They reduced people's contact with each other to almost nothing, and the R-naught of the disease went below one. It may go back up again now that there are people out and about. And, I mean, the other thing I would say is we're still not there that it's completely uncontrollable. I mean, Mm -hmm. South Korea has shown that you can get a lot of cases, and if you have enough testing – and people sort, of, and the public health authorities are very aggressive. You can sort of bring it back in in check, but that that goes hand in hand with measures to keep our knot down.
1: Well, and it's interesting. I do think about this. You know, this is our version of the Chinese quarantine. You know, if you stay at home, you're kind of self quarantining yourself um, and keeping yourself out of the public. It's not just about protecting yourself, but if you're not, I think about this when I look at the subways. I feel like the traffic is way down, but you're protecting others who you might come into contact with especially when you're dealing with something like yeah, mass and the transportation. Subway's less
3: crowded now.
4: Yeah, if if people aren't as squeezed squeezed as close together in the subway or in the office or in the like the soup line at Bloomberg headquarters, then there's a little bit less risk. I mean it's not like I'm doing some heroic thing here, right. but it does reduce everybody's risk a tiny bit.
1: Right. I do think about our Business Week audience, and there's a lot of folks that probably read the magazine or are in that position where they can work from home. The other thing, and I don't know if you thought about this, I mean, increasingly what we're seeing companies are realizing that their systems, their technology systems, are being taxed as a result of this.
4: Yeah. I mean, if every if every single interviewer you were doing was this way and everybody was remote and you guys were remote too, we might be struggling a lot more. It's sort of easier and like an early adopter here to um, to do it. It might get harder later if more of us have to do this.
1: You write about a lot of things. And I do wonder if you think about one of the things I think we're trying to assess, whether it's supply, global supply chains uh, or other factors, how something like the coronavirus might impact the workplace going forward. And I do wonder if you think that in the future, we'll see more folks doing things online, staying homes. I mean, we talked about this in the past when we've gone through other crises. But I wonder if you think Something might be different this time around.
4: And I, you know, there's a steady trend in the direction of more people working remotely. And then there are occasional things like when Melissa Meyer took over at Yahoo ordering everybody to come back to the office. So there's a back and forth, but it's pretty clear the trend over the past 20 years for obvious reasons, because it's more and more possible to do. And more and more companies are starting up that basically structure themselves that way from the beginning. Um, and so, you know, it's harder for big established companies to, to change to that. And a lot of them wouldn't want to because you get a lot out of the in-person interaction. So, I, yeah. I, I mean, this will cause a lot more people to try it and will cause companies to figure out better ways to do it. So maybe it'll accelerate it a little, but I don't think it's going to be some huge tipping point.
0: And that's Justin Fox, our Bloomberg Opinion columnist, speaking appropriately from home. This has been the story of this entire virus in many ways. And when you think about it, It hitting close to home here in New York City and here in the United States. This is what we're seeing company by company, our own and many others.
1: Right. It's all about social distancing. In the business section this week, several stories, including what companies are doing to get ready for the virus. I mean, this is a huge global story. It's a big corporate story.
0: Absolutely. And CEOs having to make a lot of tough decisions. Workers having to make decisions, obviously, as well. Jim Ellis is the man in charge of all of our business coverage at Bloomberg Businessweek. How do you take this on?
5: this was uh, uh, this was difficult because what we've discovered uh, over the last couple of weeks is that this is something that affects every business and everything in business and so when we thought about what could we do we sort of divided up and uh, decided we were going to look at some companies that were actually dealing with this some industries that found themselves in a position where they couldn't stop and they they have to go on with business as usual even though this is not usual and then you know sort of what can we what, what can we learn about about, you know about shortages and how companies are dealing with those, so those are the three big things we want to concentrate on
1: well doing business or going on with business as usual is not so easy if you're in the auto industry no. you've got cars that have what four thousand and counting parts in it
5: that's one of the problems for that business it's um you know one of the things about globalism is that it's allowed you to have supply chains that stretch across borders and allow you to do millions of things with people who are making things for you a world i should say twelve time zones away. And so we looked at Peugeot, which is uh, building cars with, you know, and it's got four thousand parts, but it also has, you know, six thousand, you know, sort of companies that it buys from. Right. Many of those are in China. And so what it discovered is, since Wuhan, where the virus started, is also the center of sort of auto parts manufacturing for much of Asia, um, they discovered, you know, they had to identify the people who in their supply chain who might not be able to, um, you know, continue to supply mm-hmm. on time, and they had to scramble. Look looking for ways to you know, sort of have substitutes for those. What that meant was that um, a lot of things are just made in, in China. What they found was they went back and found the old stamps for making some of the machinery that went to China, and then they were, are actually making machinery, making making parts, much slower than at a Chinese plant, but making parts with some of those old stamps just to kind of make up for things now. They're also taking other plants across Europe where you know, Peugeot is based right. in, in France and other parts of, of Europe to make things that the Chinese made. Now, this is going to be slower and it's probably going to be more expensive. Right. But what it means is that they are able to continue production even though important parts of the supply chain are stopped.
0: For the moment, in the and one of the things that they discovered in one particular case was the backup to (laughs) China was Milan.
5: Right. And that is a problem because for a lot of European makers, northern. Italy is a big place for making, um, you know, parts. And now that we've had um, you know disruptions there, and particularly the lockdown in the next couple of days or the last couple of days, people are having to scramble then to look for other ways to do this. This is not going to work out well. Only thing, and it's not a positive, but at least one thing that's going to happen is probably demand is going to drop in parts of Europe where things are locked down. A lot of people are not going to be going out to buy cars, and so in some ways, it's it's this mixed blessing. It's going to slow down the demand for cars. And so therefore, the lower production numbers that you're having because of the disrupted supply chain are not going to hurt you as bad as if everyone was going out shopping.
1: What's going on at Peugeot and so many different companies is we are closely looking at the global supply chain. Uh, and we were doing that already coming off the US-China trade war. But I do wonder, what's the long-term impact? Can companies really just not... Play in that world and arena anymore? Probably not. not. Yeah. No,
5: it, the thing is yeah. that there's so there's lots of talk, but yeah, there's a lot of talk, but you know, in, in a lot of ways, uh, China is a pretty good place to manufacture. I mean, it has a lot of manufacturing plant infrastructure, it also has great transportation links to the rest of the world. Those are established, we know how they work, and it's not like starting in a brand new country where it's maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, maybe it'll work now, but can it really scale up? So therefore, people are going to wait for China to get it back together. The other thing is that China is farther along in dealing with the um, epidemic, Mm -hmm. and so therefore, they may come out of this earlier than other places. So I don't think anybody's willing to say long term I'm dropping China, I'm moving to Vietnam, I'm moving to Thailand. I mean, right now, those places are benefiting. But that's a big question about whether those, uh, that, that manufacturing will shift back to China later.
0: All right. One thing that is very front of mind for just about every business person is business travel, conferences, big gatherings of people. We're seeing them canceled left and right, and yet we sent a reporter – you sent yes. a reporter to Las Vegas to a show – That
5: went on. Yes. I mean that was the – one of the things I wanted to capture was what happens when the show must go on. And so it turns out that this week in Las Vegas, Con Expo, which is the largest construction industry show, it's usually about 120,000 people. So it's a very large show. It's only held every three years. And because of that – um, you know, it, 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 it's something that's difficult to postpone. You postpone a show that's every three years. What, are you going to wait until 2023? Right. No, they decided to go ahead and do it. And what that means is that it has to be done in a different way than the typical, you know, sort of backslapping, glad-handing yeah. um, sort of trade show that you expect. Lots of people crowded on top of each other. And so there are a lot of things that are different, but surprisingly, there's a lot of things that are the same. Uh, what we discovered was... Obviously, there's lots of Purell everywhere. And um, they've even instituted a, a no handshake policy. Now that's very different than what you're expecting in a in a business contest sure. like that. But they it's have all little about oh yeah that's it. They have, but they have little buttons that show the handshake and a cross across <laughs> them. None of that handshaking. And what was interesting is different people are doing it different ways. The the CEO of Caterpillar, which is the largest ma- ma- machinery manufacturer in the world, he's there and he is doing um, an elbow bump yeah when he greets people there's another um uh, person who's there. The head of Bobcat is doing the shoulder wiggle. And um, there's all sorts of things. There are people who are knocking knees. There are people who are shaking their feet. I mean, it sounds a little crazy, but it's just, you know, it's one of those things, so not to touch. But people are still there. One of the people um, um, that we talked to yesterday was, he had a mask. He says, yeah, I brought some masks, but they're hanging from his, uh, you know, his uh, His ID. Yeah. And so he's not wearing them. People aren't wearing them. I mean, people are kind of going about their business, and they're being careful about washing hands, but they're still doing business in a somewhat old-fashioned way.
1: Thinking about the lucky reporter who got to go there.
5: Yeah. I'm just going
1: to say, speaking about going about their business, um, those companies that produce things like Clorox wipes and uh, Purell anti-back, Jason's been really into the anti-back in our studios. <laughs> I mean, they're doing a lot of business right now. And this leads to another story in the business section that talks about price gouging.
5: Yeah. One of the problems is that most companies um, love when business goes up, you know, and there's more demand. What they don't like and they're usually not prepared for is when business spikes. In other words, what we've been seeing for things like masks and wipes, um, you know, the 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 increase is in thousands of percent. Right. It's not as if oh, I have a ten percent increase. I can maybe add three people to my line. This straight is, line up in terms this of This is demand. up, and so how do you deal with that? So a lot of companies are ending up with trouble you know being able to stock their regular customers and a lot of people particularly in the online world are taking advantage of that by raising prices right and but not raising prices in a small way but sort of doubling tripling prices I think a lot of people have seen that uh, things like on Amazon where you see $300 Purell $400 Purell when it should cost eight Right. right and so that Sort of, we think of that as price gouging. But price gouging, it turns out, is A, a lot difficult. It's difficult to figure out exactly what it is, and it's really hard to stop.
0: Right. And regulators and lawmakers are really wrestling with this A, sort of getting out ahead of it, but B, also figuring out well, what do we go after? What do we not go after? What does the market need to take care of and what do we need to take
5: yeah, care of? Yeah, we figured out that most likely the, 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 the regulators aren't going to be able to stop this for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, Consumer laws in most states are pretty weak when it comes to this. And even laws that snap in and say, oh, you, you shouldn't have this kind of predatory pricing, they do it after an emergency has been declared. And usually by that time, the prices are already up. Right. And so you say, OK, you can't raise it, but it's already at $300. So so what? But it also turns out that a lot of times the pricing that we see online that we think of as predatory pricing or price gouging is sometimes driven by um, the pricing models that you have to have in the online world. I find this fascinating. It turns out that at Amazon, for a person who is a seller there, they are penalized in Amazon's um, um, world by being out of stock. And so you never want to be out of stock. So what they've done is their own pricing models, their own software sort of says the less stock I have, raise the prices so they'll slow down sales so that I won't go out of stock and then I'll be penalized for Amazon. So what happens is those last few items suddenly become a lot more expensive. And they consciously didn't try to do that, but they're trying desperately not to run a file of the algorithms at at, at Amazon.
1: That's Jim Ellis. He's responsible, of course, for the business section of the magazine. And business, folks are trying to figure out how to keep the business running. They're looking at supply chains. There's so many different angles uh, to this part of the story.
0: Absolutely. And all the way down to all that price gouging you're seeing online. Also, the idea of people getting together in mass gatherings certainly took a turn this week. And yet, you have folks still getting together, clearly under different rules.
1: Let's get back to the special issue of the magazine. It is devoted to the coronavirus and the architect of it all, our editor, Pat Regnier.
0: That's right. He oversaw sort of putting all the pieces together. It wasn't easy. Lucky for him, he had the global empire of Bloomberg News at his disposal, whether it was picking the right stories, writing the stories, even putting all the right images together.
1: So, Pat, there was so much for you guys to get into. And what was a fast and rapidly moving story? How did you structure it?
6: Well, we started by just thinking of it in terms of scale. So we started with kind of the big picture, literally macroeconomics. Uh, then we moved on to government. Uh, and then we started to look at how is this affecting individual businesses. And then we really got to the heart of the story, which is the people that it's affecting, and then all the way down to the microbe, and like looking at the virus and what we know about it, which is in many ways the most challenging part, because there's still so much we don't know about it, and um, how it's working epidemiologically, and sort of what's going to happen.
0: Well, and what was interesting, too, for us to sort of watch uh, pretty close at hand, and we're talking (laughs) uh, to you guys all throughout the week on our daily show as well, is this was, I mean, beyond a team effort in many ways, really leveraging the entire Bloomberg empire in many ways because this is – A global pandemic emphasis on global
6: this is a global story and we we really felt strongly that one of the things that we could do was to get people to look you know outside of the united states and to see where this is already happening you know i think a lot of us feel like you know this is a fast-moving public health story uh this is a time when people are going to have to work together and i think a part of that is to actually see what's happening, Mm -hmm. both to maybe get a sense of what's coming, um, but also to get a sense of some of the human experiences that people are are having there. Some of the the stories uh, we have in the magazine are uh, truly heartbreaking.
1: Yeah, I I was going to say, what struck you about the coverage this week?
6: You know, one of the stories that uh, a lot of the editors have talked the most about is a story about a family in China where they've really just sort of seen the family decimated. Uh, we talked to a woman. She lost both her mother and her grandmother. Um, as they were facing um, you know, shortages of hospitals, they simply couldn't get beds. Um, And, you know, the last time she spoke to her mother, her mother was very sick and wasn't able to talk to her, and they weren't able to get her the care she needed, and she spoke to her mother in anger because she was so frustrated at what happened, and that was the last conversation she had had. And it was a a very dramatic story, and we're beginning to see that unfold in Italy as well, Mm -hmm. and we're all kind of thinking about um is this system here in the united states and in other parts of the world prepared for the the strain that's to come and that's one of the reasons why it's so important to understand what we know about the course of the virus and how it spreads well let's
0: talk about that a little bit because you guys do go down all the way to Mm -hmm. the microbial level in Mm -hmm. in some ways to understand some of the science to help us understand Mm -hmm. and and viewers and listeners and readers understand the science what struck you about that so i one of the things that really
6: struck us was you do have to think about you know, as we're all washing our hands and social distancing from one another, why are we doing that? Um, some people take reassurance, maybe too much reassurance, from the fact that, you know, if you're relatively young, if you're healthy, uh, it's unlikely that you'll get very sick. Um, but a part, of, a part of what we're doing as we're all washing our hands is not taking care of ourselves, but taking care of the other people around right. us, trying to slow the spread. And that's again, that's what gets back to this thing about the healthcare system. The more you can slow the spread, even if ultimately the raw numbers of people who get it are very high what really matter is the timing um, are there you know, are there beds? Are there ventilators? Um, you know, my wife happens to be a nurse, and uh, we're, we're, we're seeing this firsthand. We're already beginning to see some of the strains in the system.
1: Jason and I have been lucky enough to actually spend some time with um, one of the doctors out on the West Coast that's part of that Seattle hospital system, which has been kind of ground zero and where the first patient happened. You know, one of the things that we've heard is the inability to get test kits, and, and mm-hmm. there is, everybody's working on a vaccination, but it takes time, and you guys get into this, which I think is so crucial right. to understanding this story. <laughs>
6: So it's so important um, to ha- to have the tests, both so that we have a sense of, like, what is the actual, you know, case fatality of this? I mean, you don't really know what the fatality rate is until you actually know how many people have it, how many people get it. But also, again, so that you can direct care to people, right. so that you can um, know what to do with people who are the worried well. Um, you know, uh, if, if you have a cold, should you come to work? It would help to know if you only have a cold.
0: Right. Well, and one of the things you talk about, which was a surprising story and an eye-opening one for for me at least, is the availability of a specific type of mice Mice. (laughs) in order to test for a vaccine.
6: Right. So we have a story about sort of the struggle to you know find this specific sort of mouse in order in order to do this testing. You know, other places in Bloomberg are looking at. You know, they're doing some testing in baboons. Um, you know, Carol, I know that you've recently uh, talked to people at healthcare companies who are talking about, we need the reagents right. yeah. uh, to, to run these tests. The whole system is straining to find this. We had in more than one place in the magazine uh, people talking about how, like, we're working 14, 18-hour days. You know, ordinarily when we're doing a magazine, we would find things that are repeating and we would take it out and we would only have it in one place. In this, in this thing, we were looking at something so unique over here people are working 14 and 18 hour days over here people are working 14 and 18 hour days every time someone told us wash your hands cover your cough we left that in the magazine you'll read it about a hundred times in our magazine uh,
0: this week and we think it really matters and that's pat regnier what a nice overview of what they were trying to do also the seriousness of all of this a reminder the human toll here we talk so much about the macro effects here at Bloomberg. We talk about markets, numbers, but there's a real human toll here.
1: And I have to say, Jason, I do love that. Obviously, this is a science story. And understanding the virus is really crucial to us figuring out how to contain it, control it in the future. Uh, and the magazine and Pat's coverage uh, of the team here at uh, Businessweek really got into that as well. Very, very important and a must read. No doubt about it. This is going to be the business story of 2020. Some are calling it the lost year, Jason Kelly.
0: Well, and certainly when that comes to the economy, it's a massive question, especially given this bull run that we have been in. A key week for sure. And looking ahead for us, as always, is Peter Coy, economics editor for Bloomberg Businessweek. Tell us what you set out to do here because this is a big assignment in some
7: ways. Joel Weber decided he wanted to devote really an entire issue to this coronavirus. And so I wrote economic story, but it's not just the numbers. I try to be uh, get at the concepts here. And to me, the fascinating analogy between the way the coronavirus attacks the body and what happens is that it provokes an overreaction of the immune system. You get what's called a cytokine storm, which unleashes uh, – the body's uh, immune system to attack, like the lungs, which causes pneumonia and, in some cases, death. So there's an analogy. What's the damage to the economy that we've suffered so far? It's primarily from the attempts to fight the virus rather than the ravages of the virus itself.
1: Which includes kind of shutting down a lot of things.
7: Quarantines, plant shutdowns. You know, businesses closing, transportation and so on. All those things are devastating global GDP. And so the question is – and you said the question of 2020 is how are we collectively, meaning the, the, the human race, going to manage to fight off the virus as we must without destroying everything else we care about, the economy, our family lives and so on? And you know, one of the interesting things –
0: About this economic moment and you quote uh, Mark Zandi, well-known guy over at Moody's, chief economist. He says we could be moving from a self-reinforcing positive cycle to a self-reinforcing negative cycle. And that seems to be such a
7: key insight here. Yeah, because what is a recession? Recession is when you lose faith in the future Mm -hmm. and you don't invest for the future if you're a business. You don't buy if you're a consumer. You hunker down. And that very act of hunkering down which is trying to protect you from the recession itself can trigger the recession because what works for one family or one company doesn't work collectively when everybody tries to do it at once. This is what John Maynard Keynes called the paradox of thrift.
1: That is fascinating, Um, the theory of it. I do wonder, Peter, can we use (laughs) – or how do we look at China in terms of their – what they have been doing? Is it a cautionary tale?
7: I I don't know how to judge China because on the one hand, the number of cases they're reporting is way, way down. Yeah. And you have to think that's good news. It's good news for the Chinese, potentially very good news for the rest of the world if indeed it's replicable. So two things. One is will China's – have a rebound of cases as they gear up, go back to normal life, mm. reopen factories and businesses, and people start communicating again. And you know,
1: that's a huge unknown, and we really haven't talked about that, but that's a huge uh, it, unknown. It
7: is, and, and I don't know the answer either, but I'm extremely curious. I think the world should be intensely watching China's experience whether to get new flare ups. The second thing is a little more predictable, which is that. The rest of the world is probably not going to be able to do what China has done. I mean China is an authoritarian police state with high-tech surveillance capabilities. They can shut things down in a way that other countries can't. I I look at the case of Italy where the prime minister wants to shut down the entire country. I mean … And effectively has. Yeah, well … That's un- – legally has, whether it's going to work in yeah. practice is, to me, a great unknown. I just don't think Italy has either the technology or the culture to do what the Chinese did in Hubei province.
1: We'll go back to China because we know that their economic output, right, their GDP is going to be cut dramatically.
7: In the first quarter for in sure, In the first yes. quarter.
1: So we don't ultimately know that by doing – and they can easily kind of shut down the yeah. Chinese society, whether or not – that ultimately makes a difference or whether – it may you know what I mean yeah. in terms of – because the other point is it spread, yeah. right? It, the right. virus moved beyond China. So it's not like it was shut down completely. So there
7: continues to be a debate over whether China did the right thing. Yeah. I mean – but the one good thing about what China did is that by holding down the number of cases – they call it shaving off the top of the spike. If you can spread out the incidence of a disease over a longer period of time – without reducing the number of cases, that itself is a good thing right? Right. because it means you can handle – your emergency rooms can handle the cases as they come in, whereas if they're all concentrated at once, there's going to be a lot of people who just be untreated. Right. So where does the U.S. go from here? This has been quite a decade
0: plus uh, for U.S. economic growth. Something was going to get in the way of this bull market. Something was going to stop it. And there was a lot of speculation. You and we and everybody else in 2019 said it's going to be
7: likely an exogenous event. Well, here we are. This is a classic exogenous event. It's not something that was internal to the economy like growing a deadness or something the way the last financial crisis occurred. It's like it's something – this weird little piece of RNA virus that's suddenly spreading like wildfire and – we have been in the longest economic expansion in U.S. history going back to 1854. It's been remarkable. Ever since the end of the financial crisis in June 2009, the U.S. economy has been growing. And it had to end sometime. There are more and more economists who are saying that it just could be the year. And I wrote something that said that we may already be in a recession, i.e. February may have been the peak of economic activity.
1: Right. You put that out about a week ago.
7: Last week, Well,
1: what's interesting is the stock market, though, just throw that in, just one more thing, is not the economy. And yet the stock market certainly can impact spending behaviors.
7: Right. So we've had a big decline, a lot of turmoil, a lot of volatility in the stock market. And so that, uh, again, is both a symptom of the trouble and possibly a cause of more trouble. Because what happens when, when the stocks go down, people feel poorer. Right. This is the wealth effect. The wealth effect. You, you know, I don't want to go out and buy that new refrigerator because my portfolio is smaller than it was. You know, that's one one way. Businesses look at it and say, um, "Gee, my stock price is down. People are collectively expressing less confidence in my future. Maybe I shouldn't be overstretching." And these things feed on themselves. It gets back to the Keynes note again.
1: That's Peter Coy, our economics editor here. And, you know, just a week ago, he was talking about the U.S. already probably being in a recession. Here he talks about how, as we fight the virus, we're also pretty much harming the economy at the same time.
0: Absolutely. I mean, this is ultimately a consumer economy, especially here in the United States. How we take it on, how the administration takes it on, how central banks take it on, that's going to have a knock-on effect. And it's possible that the way this is fought, will ultimately hurt the global economy. All right, so I have a million things to ask our next guest, uh, and it's a homecoming of sorts for him, Dexter Roberts. He is now a Mansfield Fellow at the University of Montana, but he's former China Bureau Chief for Bloomberg Business Week. He's got a book out, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker of the Factory, and the Future of the World. No big deal. Just taking on a huge topic here. He's here <laughs> with me in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Welcome back.
8: Well, thank you. Uh,
0: so I gotta I don't I've been debating with myself where to start. Let's start with the book just because it it's so timely in a lot of ways you probably couldn't have imagined how timely it was gonna be when you started it. What was the idea that you set out to capture?
8: So uh, the, the basic idea, or the, the myth of the title, is this idea that uh, China is becoming more capitalistic, that China is uh, continuing on this reform path that started way back under Deng Xiaoping. Yeah. Um, and uh, continuing, the myth is that China will continue to grow its middle class. And all, be, yes.
0: All right. So I'm going to stop you there only to say, what does the last three months mean for that?
8: Well, um, the last. So we were talking coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So I mean, I think I I think that we what what some of the things, the arguments I make in the book about. Uh, uh, at the other China, the migrant workers and the farmers, their are cousins in the countryside, which, by the way, is about 500 million people. So we're wow. talking we're getting close to half the population. Um, they've been long. treated More people than live in the United States. Uh, yes, considerably more than live in the United States. Well, for a long time, they've in effect been treated as second class citizens. Um, they don't have access to the same health care. They don't have access to the same education. On average, they're making, you know, less than a, or roughly a third of, of, of urban incomes and there's policies that that keep them in that position, which we can get into later. Um, but that uh, relationship between the city, the people in the city and these second class citizens has really been brought home. I mean, the the unequal relationship has really been brought home by the coronavirus because these, even as cities in Beijing seem to be returning to some degree, normalcy is not the right word, but things are a little more regular there. You know, if you're a white collar worker, you're working from home, you're going to the office, um, sometimes things are a little more normal, companies are reopening. That's not happening for for these people, these migrants and and rural people.
0: Right, and so you were in Beijing for 23 years, you were in Taiwan before that. How did this story, Change. What, did, so, how did, did your thesis evolve, or what did you see happen over that period? Because that twenty-three years—it just ended uh, for you just a couple of years ago. I, I mean, what a period in, in the history of the country.
8: Yes, I mean, I, when I, I arrived in, I think it was January of nineteen ninety-five in Beijing, and uh, you know, the economy was somewhere in the bottom of the top 10 economies in the world, I think. Uh, there wasn't really a consumer economy. There really wasn't. I mean, yeah. the car sales were 85% government and fleet sales for big state enterprises. There weren't people buying cars. There was no housing market, really. There was no housing market until until later reforms happened in the late 90s. So uh, the place was transformed. Uh, WTO entry in 2001, which I covered for Business Week, was a real seminal moment, obviously bringing in Enormous amounts of investment uh, and really transforming the economy and, and bringing this uh, factory to the world uh, export model into its into its full uh, full character. hmm. And so
0: when you left. What did what what sort of what were you thinking China would become? Is that sort of what's manifested in this book? In some yeah. Way?
8: So I mean, I first met some of the the people that I talk about in the book this this family from uh, or this relatives from a, a small town in rural Guizhou, the Mo's, in the year 2000. I was doing a cover story. I did a cover story for Business Week called "The Great Migration." Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And at that point, um, uh, you know, we're uh, a year before WTO entry. Everyone knew China was getting in then. The agreement was signed in 99. There was great hope, including for these villagers in this small town. This idea that foreign investment would come in. They were glad to see me as a Business Week reporter who might somehow let the world know about their village. They wanted a processing factories for the the chilies that they grew in in the slopes in their their town. So there was really great hope. And this continued for years, I must say. But what I argue in the book is, uh particularly in the last five years, uh that vision of, of a, a continual reform and more opportunity for people has 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 really vanished.
0: And that's Dexter Roberts. Really enjoyed catching up with him because his book is really about the worker in China, but it's so timely given the rural versus city element of this virus. Crisis, what we've learned there, and what we may need to learn as it spreads around the world.
1: As you said, Jason, a timely conversation.
0: Uh, He's into that walk-in music. Jay Stein, Chief Executive Officer of Dream Hotel Group. Now you get it. He's based in New York City. He's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Right now, he is a veteran of this business. We're going to talk about some of his new hotels. But Jay, got to start by asking, coronavirus and its effect on the travel business feels heavy. Uh, What are you seeing out there?
9: Yeah, so uh, internationally, certainly over in Asia, we've been hear, hearing and reading about this for for a number of months. Uh, China uh, has gotten hit very hard, Hong Kong hit very hard, and most of the other uh, prime Asian markets over the last six weeks had been hit fairly hard as well. Uh, and then, of course, we heard about hit- Italy, and uh, in the last, really just in the last week or so, it's really hit hard here in the U.S. And most of it has been, you know, precautionary. Uh, I think if you look at the numbers, the actual numbers, they're still very low, but we're not sure where they're gonna head. And uh, in this modern era, people have been told to be cautious, and less travel, and uh, less movement around, and less need for hotels. So. We're really seeing an impact now.
1: So wait, you have hotels in Nashville, Hollywood, New York City, Miami, Thailand. Tell me about Thailand. And New York. And New York. (laughs) (laughs) And New York, yes. Oh, I thought I said New York. Okay, sorry. New York City. So Thailand, tell me about that specifically. So that hotel,
9: uh, the business has been off probably about 50% uh, over the last month or so. Um, And I think, you know, it's stabilized now, and I think we'll start to see things start to move. It has back stabilized? Up. Yeah, I think it's stabilized. It's not dropping anymore. Mm. Those Are weapons. people
1: coming in? Are you starting to give me an idea of like people saying? Because one of the things we're trying to figure out is how much of this virus is lasting in terms of people saying, I don't know that I want to travel so far anymore. So I'm just curious, most of the people who come to, to your places in Thailand, where are they coming from?
9: So it's a fair amount of uh, domestic and Asia driven business okay business uh, from other Asian countries
1: so any signs in terms of business people looking to book in a couple months later this year yeah
9: so as I said I still think we're about 50% off from where we would normally be okay Uh, but I don't see it dropping uh, significantly more at this point so I'm kind of leveling off at that range from about 50% of where we'd normally be Uh, but we'll see if that holds and if it starts to move and so where and, and so
0: do you just start to see it in cancellations do you start to see it sort of to Carol's question in sort of behavior where people are coming from I mean you guys have a lot of data at, at your disposal I do wonder as you go a level down what do you see You say?
9: know so it starts with the group bookings
0: Yeah so those are
9: you know the the, the most mm-hmm. the, the furthest out and the biggest numbers and the ones that need to be a little more Cautionary. So, w- once we see the group numbers starting to to take impact, and and those go quick because you know if you drop six, seven groups of 30, 40, 50 people a night for four or five nights each, you know you're dropping uh, you know half a million dollars yeah. uh, in, in an hour. And uh, so we, we've been seeing a fair amount of group cancellations, particularly this week here in the states.
0: Well, because <clears throat> to that point, I mean, it does feel like we've been talking a lot about this mm-hmm. this notion of. What people are being advised against is more around large gatherings and less around, I mean, obviously people are scaling back travel and a lot of companies, including ours, are saying, hey, maybe don't take that business trip. But more, you're just saying, well, we're not going to do this conference. You know, we were supposed to go to the Milken Conference right. in LA, you know, coming up in two months. They push that back to July uh, for now. So those, to your point, the, those group bookings, and do those come back?
9: Well, they do come back. Most of those are, a- are annual. The ones you were talking i was supposed to be in Berlin for the big uh, hotel conference yeah. first week of March every year. That got canceled two days before, so it started wow. on a Sunday. I think on Friday they made the official announcement that it was going to cancel, and then ITB, the largest trade show, uh, hotel trade show, on the heels of that every year, was also got canceled. But then it got canceled. They got uh, postponed. Yeah, so I think they moved them to June. We'll see how that holds. Obviously, with the Olympics coming up, you know, a huge amount of travel. <sighs> Um, but as you say, you know it's it's group
1: stuff so starts suggesting
9: right. people not to be at those the impact is huge, huge.
1: So so I am curious about some of your properties here in the United States, whether it's New York City and we're all kind of watching very closely Hollywood, um, Nashville Miami are you seeing in Durham? And Durham. Yeah. Um, are you seeing any kind of pullback in terms of reservations and people canceling? Oh, yeah. Oh, you are? Oh, definitely, yeah. We're, How much is uh, business down?
9: We're down probably 30%, but it's still dropping. Yeah. So, uh, And that's more for the month of March. Yeah. April, a little less, because some people just haven't made their decisions. So a lot of the groups have already made their decisions, but a lot of the transient have not. And hopefully... Uh, you know, once it does start to stabilize, some of those won't drop out. And there will be some pent-up demand. But the ramp-up won't go back in a week. You, yeah. you can't get those group bookings back in a week. Right. That'll take some time. The transient stuff moves a little quicker.
1: Is there a lasting impact in terms of the, the, the virus? I mean, in terms of, I don't know, and how you guys, I don't know. Do you I would you say anticipate?
9: definitely not. No, okay. You know, uh, you know even as something like the cruise ships, and I'm not a cruise ship specialist, but even there, and there's been some scares over the years, right. and that's always come back. Yeah, uh, but I can say certainly from the hotel part, and I've been through a number of these and different things over the many years I've been doing it. Um, it's it's always come back as long as that market is still a good market. Um, but I, I don't think it's uh, the virus that's going to cause the industry to change. Maybe this industry People has been around traveling. for 5,000 years. People have right. traveled and needed a place to stay and get something to eat and be safe. So uh, I don't see that changing anytime soon.
0: Jay Stein, still so with the CEO of Dream Hotel Group, based here in New York City. So i got to ask you, the New York hotel scene, I mean, I live here now, but I used to travel here a lot. It's a crazy hotel scene, but it's sort of the birth in many ways of the boutique, or at least it it feels like it. How has the New York hotel scene evolved during your career?
9: Yeah, so I agree with you. So it is kind of the birthplace where boutique, uh, you know, Kimpton hotels was doing something like it on, on San Francisco, yeah. but really, Ian Schrager really you know, yes. put it on steroids, and uh, it's it's what we like
0: the Royalton, exact. Morgan's was, was Morgan's, ground yeah. zero,
9: and then uh, and Royalton, and you know, we were pretty early on, and Barry Sterling did the first W, yeah. and um, you know, so it, I always. You know, point to Ian that he realized our industry just had gotten off base. Yeah. We were doing these bland hotels that were pleasing and not offensive and not highly stylized and the food was so just okay. So
1: generic. Right. And uh,
9: <laughs> it was just great to, to finally say, no, you, you could offend some people and you don't have to have everybody love it. And uh, so we got involved in about 97, starting to do lifestyle hotels and have really... Uh, evolved over the last 22 years and that's our only focus is doing lifestyle
1: how much of the people that come to stay they come back again and again and again you really it's sticky
9: yeah you know it's fun you get there and a lot of times people will say oh I'm going to this bar and, and then they find out oh that's the hotel I'm staying at you know so they, they really uh, they feel like they know they've made the right decision. Well
1: what are the amenities and we just got about 25 seconds here that, so, you, that you've got to have in a New York City hotel you know
9: we kind of started the whole rooftop uh, bar situation we really did at the Dream in Midtown yeah. back in 2003 uh, but if you could do a rooftop bar with a pool uh, even if it's seasonal like New York you only have three months you know great with the pool but it's amazing to have uh we also do some other nightlife components we have an electric room which is really cool and downstairs and
1: so we're here with jay stein ceo of the new york-based dream hotel group here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio you do have a lot of properties around the country also around the world um what are your expansion plans been
9: signing up uh, almost a deal a month over the last 15 months or so we've gotten very active Uh, more of the deals now are with other developers in the old days we were the we were the developer and the and the and the brand and the manager but most of it we've morphed into a brand and management company so just recently we've signed up Turks and Caicos Playa del Carmen uh, Las Vegas and San Antonio (laughs) yeah Um, and recently behind that was uh, Cleveland and Uh, Memphis, uh, on on the heels of our national property. How do you Uh, pick? Well, you know, some of it is opportunistic. We have uh, developers that are building hotels, they want to work with a, a great lifestyle company and uh, they'll meet a few of them and hopefully uh, we're able to convince them where the right one to go to. And then we also look in particular markets. We're still not in Washington and Boston and mm. to be based here in New York for, for so many years and to not have those key cities, um, you know, that's certainly on our, our radar. We, we need to be in uh, San Francisco and London. So uh, those are probably the top four that we definitely want to make happen. We've got
1: some possible deals in all of them at the moment, but none of them are signed yet. So that's Jay Stein, the CEO of the New York-based Dream Hotel Group. And as we know, and as you heard- They've got hotels all across the country, but they also have them overseas in Thailand and elsewhere. And so getting a chance to talk with him and find out in real time what's going on in his business is so relevant to what the magazine's about all week.
0: Well, and that institutional history of understanding the hospitality industry at various moments in time and times of crisis. And this is certainly one of those. Well, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. We really appreciate you joining us. I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Carol Master. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time.
0: And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast wherever you download your podcast.
1: And of course, you can watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. You
0: get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now.
1: We'll be back next week at the same time.
0: This is Bloomberg.